So, we're in 1 John as a church through this series, and we've walked through the three tests. Uh, Each one of the tests come up in several places in Scripture, that real Christians, those who are genuinely saved, they obey God's commands. They don't continue to walk in darkness and unrepentance. And it's not that they're perfect, but they don't stubbornly refuse to repent, and they don't say they have no sin. Secondly, Real Christians love other Christians, and they show that love. Because God has loved them, they pass that love on to others. And then as Pastor Kevin brought out last week, the final test was that real Christians believe the right truths about Jesus. That doctrine is important, that they don't stray off into error, and that's, that's what makes them continue in the faith. They don't part, depart from the truths. And so now that we've finished all three tests, there's several passages or portions or important things that we've skipped over by virtue of the fact that each one of those tests is covered a little bit in chapter 2, a little bit in chapter 3, a little bit in chapter 5, and so we kind of chopped the book all up, and there's a couple of things that we want to come back and spend a little bit more time on before we go back to 2nd and 3rd John. We'll only do this for a couple of weeks, I anticipate, Uh, but one of the things that we want to dive deep on this morning, if you've got your bulletin, you see the title of our sermon is Propitiation. Uh, In both passages that I read, I read this word called propitiation. And I'm not even going to try to spell it for you on the spot because I know I'll get it wrong. But the spelling is in your bulletin. It's one of those big theological concepts that I want to stop and think about. And why does John mention it twice? The the noun form like this, uh, the, the particular way it's formed here is this is the only place it comes up in the New Testament. There's two more times the noun comes up uh, in the New Testament. There's a couple of ways the verb comes up, but there's very few usages in the New Testament. So we want to stop and think about it. Uh, What does the word mean? What is the theological concept behind it? Uh, And we're going to dig into propitiation specifically this morning. So if you want a definition super simple for propitiation, you could just write down that it's the wrath-removing sacrifice. So if you come back to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and if you look at verse 2, Jesus is the propitiation, or he's the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. That's what I want to dig into right there, the wrath-removing sacrifice. In fact, the verse goes on and says, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This morning, we're not even going to get into that phrase of what the extent of the atonement means. Uh, Certainly, John is at least saying that that, that Christ's death is sufficient for the sins of all, that his... uh, um, the sacrifice was sufficient, but we won't go far into the extent of what this means. We wouldn't want to press it into saying that every single person's sins were paid for. There's problems with that even in other places in the book that would quickly lead us into universalism, but that's outside of where we're going this morning. We're just going to stop and dig into propitiation. We're going to stop and just try to think, well, what is this word? What does it mean? Let's dig into it. We're going to kind of dip our toe into the deep end of theology this morning. And I'm going to see if I can do it while keeping you awake. It may feel a little more like a classroom than a, than a sermon, so to speak. But, but don't get scared by that. Theology is simply the study of who God is and how has he revealed himself, and what he expects of us. So when we study theology, we're studying God, and then how God relates to all of our life here. So theology is deeply practical to your everyday life. And so there's two reasons that we want to dig into this word propitiation and study theology deeply. One, as Pastor Kevin said at the close of the sermon last week, there was this admonishment 
preach the gospel to yourselves continually, regularly, over and over and over. We need to be reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. Well, we want to get the gospel right. If we're thinking about uh, who God is and what he's done for us in a wrong and incorrect way, then it's, it's going to bleed over into consequences in our lives where we're going to not understand what we should about God. And there's going to be complications in the way we go about life because we're not understanding him correctly. Uh, secondly, here's the second reason that I want to dive into propitiation this morning. At the end of the service, we're going to gather around the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take a cracker, which reminds us of Christ's broken body, and a cup, which reminds us of Christ's shed blood. And we're going to celebrate everything that I'm about to talk about. We're going to remember the truth of the atonement. We're going to remember the, the, the truth of propitiation. We're going to remember what Christ did for us through that sacrifice. So I want us to ask this question then, why can we come to the table? Like, how do we have access to the table when we gather this morning, right? Why are you allowed to draw near and why am I on what basis to have this unique fellowship with Christ? I think deep within all of us, there's this desire to, to draw near, to, to know that everything is okay, to, allow, to be allowed to have access to something or someone greater than ourselves, to, to know that we have fellowship, to know that we have communion, to know that everything is okay. There's a book that's coming out in January that I'm really excited about by Edward Welch. It's called Created to Draw Near. And in it, I got to read the sample chapter. We can't get it yet. You can pre-order it yet. But in his introduction, he talks about how you and I are fiercely independent people. And yet at the same time, we also want to draw near. We want to know that it's okay. We want to know that we're accepted. You see this. He illustrates it in several ways. Why does a crying baby cry? Because it knows something's not okay. And even though that child is independent and will grow up to rule its own life, the baby stopped crying when it's picked up and held. We're fiercely independent, but so much more we want to be close. Why do little children want best friends? Right? Why do we seek real face-to-face -face communication and relationship over digital communication? We want to draw near. We want to know that it's okay. This goes back, you guys, to the beginning of human history. From the very beginning, mankind has sought to be okay to come near, to draw close. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They walked with God and they had fellowship with God. Right? They, they, they drew near to God and God walked with them and sin broke that picture. Right? Immediately, as soon as Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that they were not allowed, what does Scripture say? Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. Right? They were exposed. They knew it wasn't okay. And they had to work. They had to say, wait a minute, we like the fellowship with God. Now if we want to draw near, now if we want to know that everything's okay, now if we want to be brought close, they worked on their own and they sewed together fig leaves thinking that perhaps that would cover but even then they knew they needed to run from God in fear and hide because they knew they couldn't be brought near to God. There was a problem, right? Sin separates us. When, when we come to this table at the end of the service, none of us in our own should have access to the table. Sin keeps us apart, 
right? Just as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, so too you and I, our sin breaks fellowship with God. And so God had a means or a way of providing covering for his people so that we've talked about this before, that there's a tension throughout scripture of how does a righteous and holy God dwell and have fellowship with his people? And God had a means and a way through the sacrificial system that a holy, righteous God could dwell with his children, the people of Israel. And over and over there were means or sacrifices or the big theological concept in all of this is atonement that God provided a covering. Now I'm going to explain just a little bit about atonement this morning because atonement is the big theological umbrella that propitiation fits under. That propitiation is a piece of, so to speak. Okay, so let's go on atonement. God had a way of, of providing a covering so that his people could draw near. Think of the sacrificial systems of the Old Testament. But you see that the ingrained with was the people. They knew they needed a way to come near to God. They knew they needed a means of covering. They needed a way for their sins to be atoned for, right? So in that, the concept of propitiation and the idea of a wrath-removing sacrifice, this is, this is ingrained in human nature and even ingrained in culture. Think even this way of pagan deities and Greek mythology. So go to a group of people who live outside of God's revealed instructions of who he is, and even they understand the need for propitiation. What do you see in some of the stories of pagan deities? There are these gods of varying powers who can be offended, at who knows what and if their anger or their wrath is on you then they need some type of sacrifice to appease or to deter their wrath and so these things are built into the stories of greek mythology they're built into the worship of pagan deities that you need some type of sacrifice to bring to appease the wrath of this god and the greater sacrifice you can come the greater chance that he will turn his wrath to favor and at the top of the list is human sacrifice that would be one of the greatest things to appease wrath you see these stories throughout the worship of pagan deities, throughout Greek mythology, and yet scripture would condemn those concepts of what propitiation is. And yet why is propitiation from cover to cover threaded into the story of the atonement and what God did through the person of Jesus Christ? What is the biblical concept of propitiation? Well, let's, let's think about this because uh, God has a way of allowing us to draw near. Again, the umbrella concept here is the atonement, right? There are many things accomplished within atonement. The, uh, some of these things would be forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins is there. Redemption is provided within the atonement. Think of the concept of penal substitution, that Christ was a penalty who was substituted in our place. He took a penalty that we deserve. Uh, more big words here, thinking of, of imputation. So you know what it means to have something imputed. So not only was Christ's righteousness imputed to us, our sins were imputed to Christ. All of this stuff falls under atonement. All of this results in justification. And one little thing in there is propitiation. We're going to dive into that. So in thinking of the atonement, remember the sacrificial system, even if you went back to Leviticus, you don't need to turn there, but in Leviticus chapter 16, there was the day of atonement, right? One day a year where the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, into the most holy place, and he had to enter with the blood of an animal and that was used as a sacrifice, as a covering at, on the mercy seat. 
And this would uh, continually, year after year, the high priest would have to come and reoffer this sacrifice. Well, that concept is atonement, that sins needed to be covered. If people wanted to draw near to God, their sins had to be atoned for and dealt with. All of that points to Hebrews. If you'd like to turn to Hebrews, you can. You're just going to turn back towards the beginning of the book, just a few pages, to the book of Hebrews, and you can go to chapter 9. And here's what the author to the Hebrews has to say. All of, all, of what you saw in, all of what you saw in the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ's sacrifice and his atoning work on our behalf. So in verse 7, But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. Why is he saying the second? What he's talking about is there was the first part of the temple where there were things that happened and there were priestly ritual duties, and this happened regularly. But into the second place, the one behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, he only went in there once a year. But into the second, the priest go regular, excuse me, verse 7, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Then come down to verse Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Jesus Christ comes, and as, as the one who had the, the divine blood to give eternal redemption, complete atonement, once for all sacrifice, Jesus comes and accomplishes what everything else in the Old Testament pointed to. And so it's the perfect atonement. And all of these other things fit under redemption, forgiveness, imputation, all of it results in justification, but propitiation is a significant part of what is taking place in atonement. That the wrath of God needs to be averted, that it needs to be turned aside, that the wrath of God needs to be satisfied. You see, if God is righteous and holy, he must pour out his judgment and his wrath on sin. So with that background of the atonement, now we need to dig into the specific concept of propitiation. So 1 John chapter 2 and 4, use the word propitiation. Why do I give it the definition, a wrath-removing sacrifice? Why, why do we give it that definition? In fact, not all theologians agree that the definition is wrath-removing sacrifice. They would prefer not to translate this word propitiation. Uh, it's possible that in your Bible you have something other than propitiation after the service. I'd love to know what a few of those are, but your Bible might say expiation or even something like this. It's the remedy for the defilement. There's a, there's a theological concept that's going on there where the translators are uncomfortable saying that God has wrath that needs to be appeased or satisfied. And so let's dig into this for a second because, brothers and sisters, this is like the heart of the gospel when it comes to penal substitution and God's wrath needing to be satisfied against sin. If you remember 
At one point in Kevin's sermon last week, he was explaining modern ways that people are departing from the faith and things that they're saying about the person and the work of Christ. And he was illustrating, here's some of the things they might say. And so he was, he was uh, facetiously saying what some of the errors were. And he said this would be one. Why would a father pour out wrath on his son to pay for our sins, sins he didn't commit? He then bears the brunt and the wrath from the father. This is sadistic and assuredly not the God I serve. So let me ask you, when you think of our God as a God who has wrath against sin, do you struggle with that? So the idea behind expiation is simply that God expunges or wipes away or just takes care of the sin problem. What is it that separates us from God? If we want to draw near, what is the barrier that keeps you and I from God? Well, it's our sin. Sin needs to be dealt with, they would say, and that's, that's really all the further they want to go. And so God can, through Christ, can ex- expiate or expunge or wipe away our sins, that almost as if God can cook the books or write it off or turn a blind eye to sin, they struggle with this concept that God as a holy God has wrath against sin that needs to be satisfied, that that demand must be met. And so they would rather just say that this is expiation, that sins are wiped away. Now, hear me when I say this. The concept of the atonement includes expiation, okay? Uh, It's not a wrong concept. It just doesn't stop there. Expiation only means half of what the word propitiation means. Propitiation means everything that expiation means, plus the satisfying of God's wrath against sin, right? Yes, God wipes away our sin. He doesn't cook the books, okay? He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin, so don't, don't think I'm trying to say that. But yes, God removes our sins and pays the penalty for those sins. Why do we say that? Where does the biblical concept of propitiation come from? Let me flip to a few places in Scripture with you and try to see some of this. So if you go back to the book of Numbers, okay? Let's illustrate it from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't have all of these words on the screen for you, but if you don't want to flip along, I'll read them and you can listen. In Numbers... The children of Israel, this is Korah's rebellion, and he has sinned, and God judged pretty severely, uh, pretty severely, harshly, uh, for Korah and his children, and the people begin grumbling. How could God judge like that? If you look at verse 41 of Numbers chapter 16, but on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, here's here's God's instructions for these rebellious people who have started grumbling against him. Get away from the midst of the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. By the way, theology is important because God doesn't like it when he is thought wrongly of. When his character is misaligned, he takes it severely. So, he says, get away, because I'm going to deal with them. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take off your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make 
atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Do you get the concept of what's going on? God in His anger and His wrath is judging their sin. He's going to pour it out on them through a plague. And, and uh, Moses and Aaron need to step in and make atonement, a covering. The word propitiation is not used, but it's the theological concept behind what God is doing with the sin here. So verse 47, so Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. What's the plague? It's God's wrath being poured out. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. You see what happens? Uh, so as Moses and Aaron come up with this plan, Moses gives Aaron the instructions, and Aaron runs out with this uh, cup that's full of embers from the fire, and he propitiates. He, he stands in the way. He, he, he lays it out as a sacrifice, and, and that turns God's wrath and stops the plague. Okay? You see what's happening there? Let's go to the New Testament for a New Testament concept. Go to the book of Romans, and we're going to flip through a little bit of Romans, especially the first five chapters. Here's what uh, Paul is explaining of all of the uses of the word propitiation in the New Testament, this is the clearest concept of that theological concept of propitiation being used as a wrath-removing sacrifice. Uh, it happens in chapter 3, verse 25, but before I get there, I, I need to show you, we're going to start in chapter 1, because I need to show you what's going on in terms of who is God, who is sin, and what does Jesus' work on the cross do to take care of this sin problem? So, in chapter 1, verse 18, this is Paul's explanation of what's happening in humanity and sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's Paul saying? God's wrath has been revealed against sin and sinners. And for the next several verses, Paul is going to explain in detail how, how sin hardens people's hearts and God's wrath is poured out among sinners. So you come over to chapter 2, look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do not do them for yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What's God going to do about all this sin? Do you think you can escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What's going to happen for those who are not saved? Well, on the day of wrath, they, God's wrath will be poured out on sinners. And there will be a judgment that comes along to sinners. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. God is a God who, yes, we've looked at chapter 4. Yes, God is love, but he is also holy. And that necessitates that he has wrath against evil. If it was to be otherwise, he would not be God. God's wrath against sin and God's love are not in opposition. This is the same God. Then come down to chapter 3, verse 9. Come, come down to chapter 3, verse 9. You say, well, maybe that was just some of the people Paul was talking about. Maybe they were going to have wrath someday. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everybody's in the same boat. We're all sinners. What's going to happen to sinners? They're going to get God's wrath. Then look at verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
Now, why does he say that? He's just built the case that the law can't take care of sin. The law just exposes sin. We, we, we aren't going to get near to God through the works of the law. The law shows us we're sinful. We need righteousness. We need to be made okay in some other way than the law. And he says salvation has come, but it's come apart from the law. It's come in a person. It's actually the case that he's going to make. Come down to verse 24. That, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You, you see the one who brought us near? It's Jesus and His blood, which served as a propitiation. It's a wrath-removing sacrifice. So, what's the end result then of all of this? What does this accomplish? Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. Think atonement. Right? We've been justified by His blood. Think propitiation. Jesus' blood was the propitiation much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see what Jesus does? He steps in and his blood serves as a propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice. So when John says in chapter 2 and chapter 4 that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he is saying that what was accomplished in the atonement was the satisfying the turning aside, the removal, the pacifying of God's wrath against sin and sinners. Paul made the case in Romans that, that what, what happens to sin and sinners, God's wrath remains on them. But because Jesus' blood serves as a propitiation, now Jesus stands in the gap. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. This, this then is what John is saying Jesus does for us. In 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What does Jesus do? He's our advocate. He speaks on our behalf. He speaks in our defense. And, and, and he says, it's, it's my blood. My blood is the propitiation. It's the wrath-removing sacrifice that brings salvation. This is what John is saying. Jesus is propitiation. His blood is the propitiation which turns turns aside God's wrath. Don't think of God's wrath and God's love as contrary. They, they go together. These two things do not stand at odds for, but for one another. That, that, uh, the idea of expiation, that idea, that concept of not wanting to attribute thoughts of a wrathful God, that liberal theology has crept into every branch of the church today. Uh, within every denomination, you'll see concepts of it. Uh, there's really, it's not as if you can say, Baptist, we got this one right and everyone else got it wrong. This is the liberal conservative divide in thinking of who God is. And, and so be on guard. What did Christ do for us when he gave his blood, when he gave his life on the cross? He satisfied God's wrath. He turned it aside. He, he paid the penalty. And this is not in any sense contrary to a God of love. In fact, this is consistent with his nature. That's what John tells us in chapter 4. He says in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, 
In this, the love of God was made manifest. This is the picture or the way that God's love was shown to us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, this concept of propitiation shows and demonstrates God's love. The biblical concept of propitiation is different from the pagan concept of propitiation in two senses. Um, John Stott wrote about this in his commentary. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, bring both of these things to light. Uh, the differences are twofold. First of all, in pagan concepts of propitiation, the, the gods are just... They have no standards. Who knows what might make them angry? Uh, there's no character lines that keep them level. But God's, God's anger is not arbitrary. It's not there one day and off the next. His righteous and holy standards keep it settled such that we always know what God's wrath is towards sin. Secondly, the pagan concept of propitiation is a bribe where someone external, either ourselves or a third party, has to bring the sacrifice. Is this good enough? Uh, now will you turn your anger away? But that's not the biblical concept. In the biblical concept of propitiation, where does the sacrifice come from? You and I, how much of the propitiation do we bring? Zero. Who provides the propitiation? It's God himself through the person of his son. Jesus was not, was not uh, an unwilling participant in the propitiation. When you, when you look at God, and if you're going to try to accuse him of being an angry, vengeful God, of how could he pour out wrath on his son, listen, Jesus came up with the plan with the Father, and together they agreed, this is how we're going to propitiate. This is how we're going to satisfy our own righteous demand. And God the Father says, I'm a righteous and holy God. My wrath must be paid for. And Jesus says, I will stand in the gap and be the advocate. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth of propitiation. George Finley says it this way, in this picture, in the picture of a righteous advocate standing before the Father on our behalf, the case is not that of love pleading with justice, rather the opposite. Justice pleads with love for our release. God is the God of love, and he loves us so much that he sent his son to take the punishment, a payment that he himself demanded, and he would supply it on his own. He's not a cruel God waiting to have, see who can bring the best sacrifice to him today. In love, he reached out on his own. Brothers and sisters, theology ought to lead us to the point where we say, God, you're good. You are good. You are good. Teach me more of who you are. And this is what the concept of propitiation means. Let me see if we can apply this in two really practical ways, okay? You can take the concept of approach, approach I'll stop. You can take the concept of propitiation and apply it in dozens of ways to your lives. So this is not an application that's even found in the text, per se, but let me just give you one place to apply it. Um, again, there's many, many more that it could be. L let me take the concept of, of parenting, all right? And so for you as parents that have children and teens, wh what is it? Do you remember propitiation in your parenting, right? Like, what is it that makes your kids okay? What is it that makes them acceptable? What is it that makes them right? We all know that they're sinners and they're not okay. But parents, do you remember propitiation when it comes to what your children need? Listen, what do they need? They don't need your laws and rules and regulations as if that's going to make them okay. 
I'm not saying those aren't necessary. I'm saying that won't make them okay, right? What makes them okay? They need a loving Heavenly Father who can propitiate on their behalf. A man named Paul Tripp writes it this way in his book on parenting. If rules and regulations had the power to change the heart and life of your child, rescuing your child from himself and giving him a heart of submission and faith, Jesus would have never needed to come. Parents, what do your kids need? They need Jesus' propitiation. And all the things that I and you do in a shortcut of parenting to heap guilt and shame and manipulation, thinking we can change them from the outside in, it won't work. Parents, we, can't, we have to stop ourselves. And these words have come out of my mouth too. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. We're in this together. Let's, let's catch ourselves. We should not in exasperation turn to our kids and say, I can't believe you would do this. Really? They're sinners. God believes they would do that. God believes they would do that so much that he sent Jesus to this earth to die for them. We as parents have to keep pointing them back to the real Savior. We just have to. We have to keep getting them back to the gospel. Uh, and, and that's what our parents need. Now, teens. It works both ways, all right? Where's all my teens at, right? Because I just know that this week something's going to happen, and you're going to have heard what I just said to your parents, and you're not going to like the way that they're responding to you. And in a moment of like self-defiance and justification, you're going to say, oh, but propitiation, and not even sure if you used it in the right context, right? And um, you're going to get yourself in trouble and me in trouble. So let's not go there, right? What does John say in chapter 2, right? He doesn't say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that your parents would be perfect. He doesn't say that, right? Um, he, he doesn't say, if any of your parents are perfect, if any of you, excuse me, he doesn't say, my little children, I'm writing these things to your parents so that they would be perfect, and if any of them aren't perfect, they're hypocrites and you don't have to listen to them. He doesn't say that, right? Your parents need propitiation just as much as you do. So the, the fact that you fall under your parents' authority doesn't rest on the fact of their perfection. It rests on the fact that that's the way God, the truly perfect one, has set it up. Your parents aren't the one who provides propitiation for you. Your parents aren't your savior. Jesus is. And so realize that just as much as you need grace, they need grace, and you still have to follow and fall under their rule. Propitiation applies in so many ways. Like, I just picked parenting on that one. We could come up with many, many, many others. Do you think about propitiation? Do you think about the fact of a righteous God having his wrath satisfied? And that's what we gather around the table this morning. We, we come here, Why? It's not because any of us are good enough on our own to make it. Living in the rat race of this world on horizontal, we, we know what it takes to be accepted and okay in terms of peer-to-peer -peer relationships, right? That's exhausting. It doesn't work that way in this vertical relationship between us and God. Why do we get to come to the table? It's only for those who have turned from their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God, you've never seen your sin and the need for a Savior and called out for salvation, well, we would invite you to that. That's, that's what you need. You need a real relationship with God. Turn from your sins and trust in the Lord for salvation. This memorial that we do is regularly for those of us who are Christians to say, yes, his propitiation is what gives me access to the table. It's what allows me to come into his presence. It was, it's what gives me a right relationship with God. God is a God of love, but don't think for a moment that he's going to let you in just because he's willing to turn a blind eye. He had to pay. Christ paid the wrath that you and I deserve, and that's what gives us access to the table.
propitiation is a beautiful thing. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for the table. Father, we come to you, and our hearts are grateful for who you are and for the way that you provided payment for our sins. We're thankful that not only did you wipe our sins away, you, you paid the price for the wrath that we deserved. You absorbed it, you turned it away, you satisfied it. We rejoice in those truths. I pray that if there's any here this morning who don't have a clear understanding of their salvation, that they would turn to Christ in saving faith, that they would turn from their sins and realize that only Christ can bring them near in his work on the cross. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.